Well, good morning, third service. I am uh, Paul Jeffries. If uh, you don't know who I am, I appear up here occasionally, um, pinch hitting for Luke, and uh, glad to be with you uh, again today. I started back in January a series that was uh, two weeks then and a week now, and maybe I'll get a week or so at some other point in the year. So it's intermittent, but a series I titled What I Wish I'd Learned in Sunday School. And I want to continue that series uh, this morning. I'm exploring some of the things I wish I'd learned much earlier in my Christian experience that I learned later, and I wish I'd gotten them down a little bit sooner. The first thing, let me just recap with you if you were here or if you weren't, this is where I was. Uh, The first thing I wish I'd learned was how to hear God's voice, because uh, having come to faith, I spent 17 years wrestling with, why isn't God speaking to me? And I met people saying, God told me this, God told me that, and he just didn't seem to be speaking very much. Uh, I mean, lightning would strike occasionally, but it would be, I could count them on the fingers of one hand. It just didn't seem to be happening as often as I thought it should be. But it was because I hadn't learned how to listen properly. Nobody told me that understanding spiritual truth is God communicating with me. Because I thought that, you know, I was, if I was reading the Word and I made a connection or I understood something or, you know, you, you hear a, a, somebody speak and it's like, oh, yeah, I get that. Wow, I didn't understand that. That wasn't me under, you know, uh, understanding things on my own. That was God communicating to me. Because truth, spiritual truth, is never discovered. It's always revealed. And that revelation is a communication from God himself. I thought God was silent, but he had never been silent. I just hadn't been computing revelation as communication. And so that's what I talked about on week one, what I wish I learned in Sunday school, how to hear God's voice. The second message was what uh, I, I wish I'd learned about God's acceptance in my life. Because I lived for many years, I grew up in church, and uh, it was just what you did on Sundays. But it was all about my performance. It was like, you know, here's, here's your checklist of things you have to do if you're going to be a good Christian. You have to do, go here, read your Bible, pray, give, uh, uh, serve, and there's all these things. And all my boxes were never checked at the same time. So you live with a sense of guilt and just, oh no, I'm just not doing very well. And, and, and therefore, God's not happy with me and therefore I'm not really accepted. And that was not the truth. Uh, I spent far too long trying to impress people around me, impress my ch- the fellow church members, impress myself, in trying to impress God so that I would be more acceptable. But what I wish I'd learned was that he wasn't looking to be impressed because I already had his full and complete love and acceptance. There was nothing I could do or had done that was going to change that. Couldn't put a dent in it, nothing. Uh, the things that I was told to do, uh, were they helpful? Were they going to help me grow? Well, yes, they were good things. But if I based my Christian life on those performance-based things, I was missing out because that's not what God accepted me on. He, he accepted me on the basis that I had believed in his son. And his love and his, his, his acceptance was full and complete, not performance-based. All God ever wanted from me was one thing. And that one thing was to simply love him with my heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's all he wanted from me, just to love him. The relationship piece. And that in itself would then have a knock-on effect 
on the kind of life I lived and the behaviors that uh, made up my life. But loving him was the response he wanted to the love and acceptance he had demonstrated to me. He wanted my heart. So that was week two. So we come to week three. So we looked at how, uh, uh, how God communicates hearing his voice and his acceptance. And we come to the happy, clappy topic of sin on week three. So, and the question that I wish I'd learned in Sunday school or had more explained was, why do I still sin? If I am a disciple of, of Christ, if I have been forgiven and uh, commissioned by you know, this statement up here, I've been commissioned to go and make disciples, and I am a disciple, why is, there, why is this still such a wrestle in my life? And the question is raised because of passages like I'm about to read you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, it says, But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So we have in Colossians, put off the old, put on the new. Take off the filthy rags, put on the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ. That's the imagery there. And then, this is a slightly longer passage, but bear with me, Romans chapter 6, from verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, why does he say that? Because, you see, if, I, if I've done things, if, if, I, uh, if I'm a sinner and, and God forgives me, well, God looks pretty good because I did these terrible things and I'm forgiven. So if I go do more terrible things, how much better is he going to look if I get to say, well, he forgave me for these, but I did these things and he forgave me for those as well. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not what you're supposed to do. Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. You've got the wrong idea. We're supposed to be died to, dead to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism and into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. And we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. All right? Anyone who has died, the dead don't commit sins, he's saying. All right? Because once, once somebody's died, game over. All right? Nobody's going to be uh, coming into your house and stealing your TV or uh, pinching your wallet as you walk down the street if they're dead. All right? They're done. There are no more sins. So and that's his argument. You know, it's, so if you have been you've been crucified with Christ, then we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, that's a heavy passage about life and death and sin, and, but we're going to unpack it a little bit together. So let's pray. 
Father, this is not the easiest of topics. We don't like to talk about uh, sin. It's one of those taboo things, really, in many ways, like uh, death and politics. We'd rather talk about something sports or something happier. But this is a part of your word, and it's an integral part of our world and our life, and therefore our understanding needs to be increased. So we ask that you, by your Spirit, shed light and understanding in heart and mind this morning, because we ask it for your Son's sake. Amen. Anyone here enjoy a good murder mystery? Yep, okay, a few. All right. Uh, I grew up reading Agatha Christie books. My mother gave me the first one when I was about 10. We were on the beach and I was bored. So she gave me this book and it was The uh, Mysterious Affair at Styles. It was actually Agatha Christie's very first book. And I went on to collect and read tons of them. But of the dozens that I read, by far the best was one called And Then There Were None. It had a couple of other titles prior to that, but uh, they were kind of socially... Um, unacceptable as time went by, and they were um, racist, so they changed the title too, and then there were none. But it's a wonderful book. It became um, a, uh, it's considered to be a masterpiece. It's sold over a hundred million copies to date, which not many books do. It makes it the best-selling murder mystery ever written. But spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin it for you in case you're thinking, oh, great, a new book. I'll go over and read that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin it for you. I'm sorry, but but it's integral to what I want to say this morning. So it's a book where 10 strangers are, uh, get, receive an invitation to a banquet uh, at an, on an island off the south coast of England. And it was I don't know, written in the 40s or 50s, I guess. But anyway, they, they, it was a small island with a mansion on it. And they were all enticed to come in different ways. One is told, you know, you're going to come and meet this old friend. Another one, you know, you have a job offer. And so the, the, each one needed a particular kind of incentive to come. And so they all came. And to get to the island, you needed to get there by ferry. And uh, so they crossed on the boat on the ferry where they all kind of arranged at the same time. And they arrive on the island. It's a tiny little island with just this, this kind of reclusive mansion on it and they all go in and uh, there's a there's a wonderful table spread with food the banquet's all laid out and the food's there and it's hot but there's nobody there you know they they're from the you know it's a, just a barren rock effectively it's not like there's lots of places to hide so they kind of okay well what do we do and so they introduce themselves to one another and they're like well the food's here it's hot why don't we just sit and eat so they sit down and start eating and towards the end of the meal a, a voice comes on a recorded voice comes on and tells them, uh, oh, I forgot to mention something kind of critical. Um, they had all been invited, you know, you as a reader gets the, uh, the background. They, all these 10 people have committed a crime. They've committed murder, in fact, but they got away with it. All right. So that's, that's what happened. And this voice, this recording comes on and announces to everybody sitting around the table uh, what their various crimes were, each one, one by one and says that they have all been um, invited to the island to, uh, to pay for their actions. At which point, of course, they all want to immediately leave the island. But uh, such was the arrangements that a storm had blown in. And it was too rough. The seas were too rough. The ferry couldn't go back and forth. It was too far to swim, and it was too choppy to swim. So they were stuck on this island together, and they're all looking around as to, you know, who's going to do anything here. And so the story of the, the whole book is about these 10 people getting bumped off one by one in accordance with this children's uh, nursery rhyme, 
Aren't nursery rhymes wonderful? Um, there were, it was like 10 green bottles where this one, you know, there were, there were 10 uh, little Indians and then this one got bumped on the head and then there were nine and then, and they just get bumped off one by one. And so you as the reader are trying to figure out, well, who's doing this? Because there is nobody else on the island. And, uh, and you keep changing your mind. Well, it must be her. No, no. And then she dies. Okay, it's definitely him. And then, and then he dies. And so, and in the end, when the, when the storm subsides, uh, they managed to get through to the police almost immediately saying, somebody's invited us and they've told us they're going to kill us. And, uh, but then the police couldn't get there either because of the storm. When the, when the storm subsides and the police finally take the ferry out to the island, they find 10 corpses and no suspects. And it's just this complete mystery. And then the book ends. <laughs> Fortunately, in the postscript of the book, you, you find out that actually victim number two didn't really die. And he was the one who had sent the invitations and invited everybody there. And he was the one who apparently had gotten bumped off but really wasn't. He wasn't dead. And uh, he then bumped everybody else off and then took his own life. So when the police arrived, there were 10 corpses and no suspects. It was like the perfect crime as far as that goes. But it kept you guessing right to the end. And it was impossible to figure out because, you know, as Paul said in, in the passage in Romans, dead men don't do anything. So you had eliminated this, uh, the, you know, the guy from the list of suspects of who could be doing this because he was already dead, except he wasn't. That was what we didn't know. Now, what's this got to do with today's topic? Well, obviously, as I just hinted, uh, those passages in Colossians and Romans, and there are others in the New Testament, there's something of a murder mystery because they talk about something that is supposed to be dead within us, something we're supposed to have put off and something else that we're supposed to have put on. But apparently it doesn't seem to be very dead. Sir doesn't seem to be dead in my life. And I'm sure if I looked at yours, it wouldn't be dead in yours either. It has a pulse. And you're like, how is that possible? Because it's supposed to be dead. It's crucified with Christ. It was dead and buried in baptism and, and it's done with. So... How is it that frequently it leaps up, runs around the room, knocks things over, upsets people, trips us up, just causes all kinds of problems? It's like an old Frankenstein movie. You think it's dead, but then it's alive, it's alive, you know, and you're like, how is that possible? And so we, uh, nobody told me that in Sunday school. Why am I still wrestling with this thing if I have now given my life to God and he has cleansed me from my sin, and he's, he's clothed me in his righteousness, and I don't really know why, what, it, what it meant to take this off, but, but I'm supposed to be now living, a, a new life. and they get this, this war going on inside me all the time. What is that? Nobody told me. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, we, we learn. The old has passed away, the behold, the new has come. Well, the old passed away, that's what we say, so somebody has passed away. We use that, and somebody has died, all right? Well, the old is supposed to have passed away. So why is it still running around causing havoc in my life? And uh, one explanation, of course, is that it's just like Agatha Christie. We, we've been deceived because really it isn't dead. You know, we want, God wants us to live as though it's dead, but it really isn't. It's still just going on. So we just have to claim that it's dead. I claim freedom from sin in my life, as though claiming does anything, you know. I'm sorry, but you can claim anything you like. I could claim to be a wonderful basketball player, 
but you could put me on a court and give me a ball, and suddenly you find out, well, okay, no, he's not very good at all. So claiming things is easy. So, but, and I've met people who've said that, yes, now that I am a Christian, I no longer sin. I've really, I've genuinely met people who said that. I'd want to speak to their spouse about that, you know, and maybe their kids. So let me ask you about dad, you know. No, it's, but, but that's what some people have said. Therefore, the old has gone. It's dead. So I must be new. But I think that's just self-deception because, you know, we still have, you know, thoughts and actions that, that trip us up. So is Scripture deceiving us? Well, no, it isn't. It isn't. Absolutely not. Because if it was deceiving us here, where else is it deceiving us? We couldn't trust anything the Scripture says. If this was, the, you know, the Agatha Christie approach, it's just, a, you know, a ploy to somehow lull us into thinking things aren't, are what they aren't. And, and I don't believe that. I don't buy it for a second. Now, to solve the mystery, actually, we have to increase, we have to broaden our understanding of what Christ actually accomplished through his death and resurrection in regard to this thing we call sin. And it's timely, of course, because we just came through Easter and we have, uh, you know, the, we have Good Friday and we have the Resurrection Sunday. And, and that's you know, that's the story, and that's where the heart of sin was dealt with. And Jesus accomplished three things when it comes to sin. The first thing he did was pay the penalty for sin. And that part we do teach in Sunday school. I learned that. I'm sure you did too, if you went to Sunday school, that Jesus paid the penalty for sin because sin, the wages, pays wages. The wages of sin is death. And that was made abundantly clear. And we're told that right from the beginning, you know, the whole world was given to Adam and Eve, whole planet, you know. If you stand outside here and look in any direction, you can see about five miles, all right. They got given a planet to go play in and enjoy and eat the fruit of. And God said, there's this one, one little tree over here. Yeah, yeah, don't touch that one. And of course, they couldn't do it. And you know the story. So sin entered the world. And sin vandalized the two things that God had created mankind to do, which was to reflect his image be an image bearer, and to have dominion, have uh, reign, and, and to care for the earth, the planet on which he placed them. Because the day you eat of this, it's, you will surely die, and die they did. Uh, the image was, was vandalized, and chaos and death and decay entered the world. The impact of sin was catastrophic. Now, we don't tend to think of sin that way, do we? At least most of the time, I don't. You kind of think of sin, well, you know, nobody's perfect. That's kind of our understanding of sin. Yeah, you know, you, you trip up occasionally. You, you know, you, you have a mental lapse or you, uh, you really secretly like to have a bazooka to blast that car out of your way or whatever it may be. Uh, and, and so it's just, that's just part of who we are. Catastrophes, hurricanes are catastrophes. Civil war is a catastrophe. Sin, sin's just kind of an irritant that we just have to live with. But I think that's a gross misconception for us. We play it down to the point where it's almost, you know, just a hiccup in life. No, no, that's not how God views it at all. Bishop J.C. Riley says this. He says, I do not think that mortal man can at all realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the sight of that holy and perfect one with whom we have to do. We have no line to fathom it, no measure by which to gauge it. But let us settle it firmly in our minds that sin is the abominable thing that God hates. 
He hates it so much, there is a hell and a worm that never dies and a fire that is not quenched. Tremendous words when we consider they are written in a book of a most merciful God. Think about that. We come and worship a God that we think of as love and peace and grace and forgiveness and mercy, and, and he is all those things. And yet that is the God who tells us about a hell and a worm and a fire because that is how catastrophic sin is and how much he hates sin. It's not a hiccup by any means. It's an earthquake of planetary proportions. It's an abomination, which is a new way for us to think about it, really, isn't it? Because that's not normally part of our radar. Frederick Buechner um, talks about um, what it took for that catastrophe to be righted, the Easter that we've just come through. It took blood and whips and thorns and nails and a spear. He says, Jesus died without the power to raise spit. And he looked less like a king than he did a road accident. That's what it took for sin to be paid for. All right? The, the, the penalty of sin is the first thing that, uh, that Jesus accomplished through his death and his resurrection. He got paid for. Uh, fully, so that, that Satan can no longer come knocking at my door and make any demands and say, you know, you f your life is forfeit because the sin in you is an abomination and it needs to be destroyed and you deserve destruction. And I can simply say, you're absolutely right. But I have claimed the name of Jesus and he paid everything to pay for that. The, the abomination got dealt with in my life. There is no more demands that you can make. Penalty was paid. That's the first thing Jesus accomplished. And that's the extent of what I learned in Sunday school. I'll probably put it a little bit more dramatically than I learned in Sunday school, but that's, that's what I learned. Penalty of, pin was, of, of sin was paid. But Jesus not only broke the, uh, paid the penalty, he also broke the power of sin. And this really is to dealing with why am I why do we still wrestle with this? Jesus broke the power of sin. And by power of sin, I'm talking about the control, the influence, the grip that sin has over us, the sway that it has that causes us to hurt people, hurt ourselves, um, just do damage in, the, in life. The uh, psalmist uh, gives us, or the psalms themselves, give us three words uh, to describe sin. We just use the one word normally, but there are three. It uses the word sin and transgression and iniquity. I've got these three different terms. And if you read the Psalms, they're all over the place. You know, forgive my transgression. You know, uh, uh, you know uh, release me from my iniquity. Well, so it's, they're all woven into the Psalms. And they describe the three different aspects of this thing we call sin, which is summed up nicely in the Anglican Confession. It says in the Anglican Confession, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. We've left undone. And that's, that's actually what sin is. Because if you don't know, sin's an old archery term. You, there's a target, you fire, you miss. That was a sin, all right? You'd sinned. And so we, uh, there were things we were supposed to have done, we didn't do them, we missed the mark, that was sin. Transgression is the opposite side of that. There are things 
that uh, we shouldn't be doing that we do. All right? You transgress. You break the rules. All right? Didn't do these. You know, didn't, I missed the mark over here. Didn't do what I should have. Did do what I shouldn't have over here. And then the third one, iniquity. Well, that's just kind of your hardwired DNA. That's part of, of who you are. See, you don't, you don't sin. Um, you're not a sinner because you commit sin. You commit sin because you're a sinner. That's, that's the way it works in our lives. We're born that way. The theological term for that is original sin, it's, uh, which some people object to, preferring to believe that children are born innocent, sinless, just kind of clean slates. But you talk to any parent, and they'll tell you, no, 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 that's not the way it is at all. And we know it's not that way because there, no parent spends not a microsecond teaching their children how to behave badly, all right? Nobody spends not, not a moment teaching them how to lie or cheat or steal or beat their brother over the head with a truck or whatever it may be. You don't teach them any of those things. All of that's just there, very fine and nicely right within them. No, no, what parents do is they spend 20 years of sweat and tears and effort trying to teach them what to do that's good, how not to kill their brother or sister, how not to take things or tell lies. They, you know, you're trying to train them to do the right thing. That's where all your energy goes because they do all the other stuff by nature. That's iniquity. It's there from the beginning. And that, the word iniquity, interestingly enough, comes from the old Latin. You know what it means? Unbalanced. So kids, if, you if your parents tell you you're unbalanced, they're absolutely right. In fact, they were unbalanced as well when they were kids. In fact, they may still be unbalanced because uh, that's what it is. It, this, this thing within us, it, we're, 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 we tend to just lean toward the wrong thing because of this nature that we have, this sin nature. My parents play lawn bowls. I don't know if you're familiar with lawn bowls. You get these wooden balls that are kind of uh, flat-sided but round, and, and you roll them, but there's a weight in one side. And when you roll them, they don't roll straight and true like a billiard ball. You have to roll them on a curve because the weight will pull them in. And uh, the skill of the game is you know, knowing how you know, steep the curve and how fast to roll them and so on. But we have that weight. We're unbalanced. We'd like to walk straight, but actually there's this thing that pulls us over this way. And that's what sin does to us all the time. What we do as parents, the best thing we can hope for is behavior modification. And we use star charts and, and promise of candy or extra TV time or whatever it takes to try and train our children, you know, the good behavior. Don't do these things. Do do these things. And, and it's, uh, but star charts and the promise of cookies is not going to change your inner nature. We can't do that. You can't fix that unbalance with just some kind of behavior piece, which is where Jesus comes in, because we need our inner nature changed, and the only way to do that is for a power greater than the power that's already there to come in and break it. That's what's required. That's what's needed. The uh, Jewish people had it. God set up a, a sacrificial system because, you know, sin has, has to be paid for. So he set up a system whereby sin, the penalty for sin could be paid. I did something wrong, so I go to the temple, and I kill the innocent for the guilty. So I, I kill the dove or the lamb 
or the goat or the boar. And the innocent beast dies that I can be forgiven. There was a death, blood was shed. And I am set free from that and I walk away. But I have to keep coming back because although I'm forgiven, there is no power for me to live any differently. And that system was just perpetuating. And we would still be doing something like that had Christ not come. Because he paid, as we read, once for all. He broke the power. He broke that whole cycle. He came in with his own life and he offered himself fully. And, uh, and if by his resurrection, he conquered death. And so there is now a power available to us that can break the power of sin within us, that can undo, that can redress that balance for us. Rather than patting us on the head, rather than, so if we came to Jesus and said, you know, God, forgive me, you know, I, I believe that you know, your death paid for my sin, uh, please forgive me, and he forgave us, and he just patted us on the head and said, now run along and uh, don't sin anymore. Pointless, useless, because we already can't do that. So why would I suddenly be able to do it? Just because that's what the sacrificial system couldn't do. But in Christ, it's possible. Because by, here's the genius, because the power that raised Christ from the dead, and that's what Paul talks about in that passage in Romans, comes to indwell us by his spirit to enable the power of sin to be broken in your life and in my life as well. The impossible becomes possible. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. We, uh, we read. And let's go back to that passage in Romans again. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Sunday school taught me about the penalty, but it didn't teach me about the power. It taught me about the saving death of Christ. It didn't teach me about the saving life of Christ. And it's his life within me that is going to uh, enable me to live a different way that can break that inner imbalance. So how do we, how do we put that into play? How does, this, how does it work? Well, the answer, obviously, is not just to try harder. Um, going out and preaching a gospel that said, come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, and now, now that you've done that, all you have to do is, uh, is be perfect. You just have to go out and live a perfect life, just like Jesus. Isn't that great? Because all you're doing, you're adding a burden to somebody's, you know, oh, how am I possibly, you know, along with the burden of trying to parent, be a good parent and a good employee and a good driver and a good, a good neighbor. And now, now I just have to be a perfect person. Oh, that's great. Okay, I'll see what I can do. No, that's not, that would be good news to nobody. For Christianity to be good news, says Samuel Rutherford, it ought to be the kind of burden that sails are to a ship, that wings are to a bird. They add power and not weight. You know, the sails, they just harness the power of the wind that's there. And the wings of a bird harness the same power of that wind. Then, you know, it's not weight. It's not burden. Uh, it's power that's being added. And it's right there, I think, that Christianity fails for so many of us because we insist on carrying the thing that should be carrying us, 
The thing that should be flowing through our life is the, is the thing that we just try and take on and say, no, I can do this. I can break this. No, you can't. I can't. But I know somebody who can. That's what it comes down to. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not about, you know, this is, it will be effortless. You know, you'll just float. It'll be fine. No, no. It's going to take all of our effort and all of our energy, but in a different direction. Let me explain it by means of an illustration. Leslie Weatherhead, in one of his books, says this. He says, here, I love this, this illustration. Here is a wise eastern farmer. He has two bulls. One is strong-shouldered with enormous muscles and with the patient eyes of strength. And here, on the other hand, is a smaller, weaker animal. Not very much good. Not able to pull anything by himself, however he might try. Much less a plow through that hard and inhospitable soil. And yet, the little one must be trained. He must play his part. Does not want to be useless. Wants to be the best he can be. So the farmer yokes them together. The strong animal carries the heavy end of the yoke and is put on the furrow and takes responsibility for the direction. The little one must just pull his weight. And over the field they go together. The little one is doing what he could never have done on his own. The impossible task, which would have burst his lungs, is done in companionship with strength. There is effort, but it is effort without strain. The power to achieve what is impossible comes from his yoke fellow. And you are watching an example of strength that comes to weakness when weakness is joined in fellowship with strength. Isn't that fantastic? That's what God invites us to do. My Christian life, my Christian faith, is, is not just an escape from the penalty of sin. It's an acceptance of the invitation to yoke myself to the Lord Jesus, which is exactly what he said. You know, if you are burdened and heavy laden, carrying this all on your own, you know, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right? Why? Because he's pulling all the weight. We're just going along with him. He's the power source. He's the one who's already broken the thing in my life I can't break. And if I yoke myself to him, well, now suddenly I can do what is utterly impossible on my own. And I can see habits that have kept me in their grip be loosed. I can see things that have chained me. And we sing about this week by week. Break the chains. And he can break those chains because not, you know, I can't break them, but yoked to the power of the resurrected Christ. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. Here's another way to think about it. Imagine sin is like the law of gravity, right? You're, you're, you're born, gravity is just there from birth. And you know it because uh, you start to stumble. And when, you know, from an infant, you try to walk and you fall over and you cry because gravity pulls you down and you hurt yourself. You scrape your knees and your elbows and, and then uh, it continues to do that for all through your childhood and you climb trees and you fall. And uh, I fell out of a tree once, stabbed myself with a cut-off stump, you know, rushed to the hospital. And, but gravity never lets you down. Now you can, you can try and overcome it and you say, you know, I've had enough of this gravity nonsense. And so you take off your heavy boots and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump and leave gravity behind. And you do for about a tenth of a second. And then it kicks again and, and you're back down again. So maybe you buy a trampoline and you're like, no, no, I can stay up longer. And so you bounce 
And, uh, and you, maybe you get to stay up for about a second or so, and you're like, wow, this is awesome. And then you come down again. And if you miss the mat, the springs really hurt, okay? Just so as you know. Great, you can't escape it. It's just there. But then one day, someone tells me of another law that exists, a higher law that can free me from the law and the pull of gravity. And of course, I don't believe them. You know, who are they fooling? I've been, I've been around the block. I've skinned my knees enough. You can't, you can't escape this. I've tried the trampoline. It doesn't work, you know? So, you know, but I decide, as much as it sounds like hocus pocus, I decide to go online and do some research and I discover, wow, there are millions of people giving testimony to the fact that there, there's this other law that can free me from this law of gravity. Uh, so I don't know sure what I've got to do here. And, uh, you know, this, this thing that has bound me and grounded me and bruised me all my whole life. So uh, if, if it's true, then what they're saying is I have to just commit myself completely with total trust. And if I do, then it will be possible for me to also break this law. So I decide to go for it by faith. I climb into what looks like a clumsy looking hollow metal tube and I take a seat. And by faith, I choose to stay in my seat as the mighty engines attached to that tube roar to life and begin to hurtle me down the runway at death-defying speeds. And my knuckles are white and my stomach's in my mouth and I think I've made a terrible mistake, I should get off, and suddenly, we're in the air. And everything they told me is true. The law of gravity is broken. And a new law comes into play, the law of aerodynamics. And I'm, and I'm in a chair in the sky and I'm floating, and it's kind of weird at first, and it doesn't feel very natural, because I'm used to doing things all on my own power, and I'm not doing anything. All I had to do was get on the plane. The power of the plane is what's enabling me to break the law of gravity. And as long as by faith I maintain my position of complete dependence on this plane, then, uh, meaning I stay on it, then I'll be free from that law. But should I decide halfway over the Atlantic, you know, I think I could do this on my own. And so you open the door and you step out and suddenly you find the old law has never gone away at all. It's only being broken because you have attached yourself to a power that breaks it. And you plummet to the earth at a rate of knots, uh, game over. But as long as I stay on the plane, my life is free from that law. Romans 8.2 through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, the resurrected life of Christ, sets me free from the law of sin and death. That's what's happening. So let me return to my original question. If I have been crucified with Christ and I'm going to count myself dead to sin as a new creation, why do I still sin? Why is it still happening? Because although the penalty was paid in full by Christ, I am locked in a body that was born unbalanced. It was born sinful. But I now know that as well as paying the penalty by his resurrection, he broke the power of sin, making it possible for its power to be broken in me as well, provided I yoke myself to the power source. And as I do that, then I am set free from the law of sin and death. And the unbalanced sinful nature in my life is undone. 
and I get to fly. That's what I wish I'd learned in Sunday school, the saving life of Christ. Now, all illustrations break down, and both of these do too, whether it's the farmer and the bulls or the airplane, because the reality is, in my life and in your life, every day, multiple times a day, multiple times an hour perhaps, I can step onto the plane, yay, and off the plane, ah, and on the plane, yay. You can do that. You know, I can yoke myself and unyoke myself, yoke myself, unyoke myself, because that's, you know, when I think I can do it on my own. Oh, no, I can't. It's still here. Oh, I better yoke myself to Jesus. Oh, I think I could do that. Oh, no, I can't. And, but the, the, the idea being, of course, that as the longer we are disciples of Christ, the longer we walk with him, the, the longer we stay yoked and the less and the more we've learned, you know, I'm just going to crash and burn. And if I know if I step away, it's going to hurt. And, and so that over time, it's not that we can become sinless, but that we sin uh, less frequently, both in all areas, whether it's the things that I shouldn't have done that I did or the things I didn't do that I should have or whether it's just my own nature, that God can break that and break me free from it. And I can live a life that the image that was vandalized gets to be restored. And people begin to see the Christ I'm yoked to because he's the invisible powerhouse in this equation. And uh, that's, that's what the, 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 the purpose of that is, so that others may see the difference that he can make. So the penalty for sin was paid. Power of sin was broken. Let me close with the third thing that Jesus secured for us, and that is freedom from the presence of sin, eventually. Imagine a world where sin wasn't around at all where you could just leave your car unlocked and your house unlocked. You could leave your wallet on the seat. In fact, you could leave your wallet on the pew. You could do that after the service, if you like. Um, <laughs> I won't be tempted. No, we're nothing. Nobody's going to hurt anyone. It's just a, a, a life free from anything that was painful. We can't even imagine that. But that is what Jesus secured. Because he's making all things new, and one day they will be all new. That's what we read in Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. The one whom we've had to yoke ourselves to by faith here and now, we will be in his presence continually, forever. So there's no, we know, there's no more getting off anything. We will, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. And all the old, all the things that were within us that kept dragging us, they're going to be eliminated permanently and forever. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and we will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Those are all the consequences of sin. Death, mourning, crying, pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. And let him who is thirsty come. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
What a wonderful way to end God's word. Starts off with a catastrophe and it ends with a glorious victory that we get to be a part of as we immerse ourselves and yoke ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. When it comes to sin, those are some of the things I wish I'd learned in Sunday school. Let's pray. Father, I think Bishop Riley is right. We do not understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Forgive us for treating it as casually as we do when in fact it cost Jesus so much. And we remembered that on Good Friday, but that's a reality for every day of the year. Sin is not something that is insignificant or a trifle. It's an earthquake. It's a hurricane. And it, and it can wreck our lives and uh, destroy what you want to accomplish within us. And the only escape, it's not cookies and star charts, the only escape is yoking ourselves to the power of the resurrected Christ. And I pray that today, multiple times today, as often as we need to, tomorrow, for the rest of our days, as we pursue you, may we learn to do that for longer and longer periods of time so that we are set free from the law of sin and death, the power of, the, of, of the, your spirit within us. Father, this is your, your purpose and goal for us as your followers, as your disciples. Make it so, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, God bless you. Go out and fly this week. And uh, just remember, if you don't, the law of gravity is always there to remind you, uh, bring you up short. <laughs>